Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the Good Music Podcast, a show where we discuss artists, songs, and talk about why we love them. New episodes every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Central. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook and become a patron to gain access to exclusive content. And now, on with the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Good Music Podcast. I'm Lucas. I'm Grant. And I'm Ethan, and welcome to the show, everybody. Uh, make sure you're subscribed because we have new episodes coming out every Monday. And if you've been around for a while and you have an artist that you'd like us to talk about, just let us know by messaging us on Facebook and Instagram. That's the easiest way to get to us. And lastly, if you love the show, uh, go down in the episode description, click on the Patreon link, and become a patron. You get episodes early. And the real benefit is that you get special access to our favorite segment, the Bad Music Podcast. That's a kind of a patron-only thing where we talk about the six worst songs of our artist uh, for that week. But uh, this is not really an artist kind of week. It's This has been kind of in the works uh, a lot recently, kind of music history. And uh, I'm really excited to, for the history lesson. But Lucas, uh, where are we at in our music history uh, as of now so we are transitioning right now from the renaissance to the baroque period and also by the way we are in the middle of a storm so if you guys hear some rain or some thunder then we'll just we'll make this kind of just very ambient kind of atmospheric this episode (laughs) well we 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 it shouldn't interfere with how we're talking but just in case you guys hear some weird noises that's what's going on um so yeah we are transitioning from renaissance to baroque and really the whole the the dividing lines between eras are usually never um like a specific thing there's a lot of debate on when did the renaissance really end and when did the baroque start there are some instances like we know specifically when the baroque period ended but that's a more of an exception rather than the rule. But a lot of historians agree that the Baroque period music-wise really began when um, opera was invented. Because it really did away with a lot of what Renaissance music was all about. It was the it was the evolution yet fundamental changing of the madrigal specifically. And um, really, it just brought in this whole different approach and uh, this this way of looking at music. As the Renaissance artists and thinkers more and more discovered all of the great art and music from Greek and Roman times, 
they were reading obviously they didn't know really what the music sounded like but they had lots of reports of how the music made people feel and they felt that renaissance music just didn't have the emotional punch Hmm. because if you look back at madrigals you've got a lot of crisscrossing um vocal lines you don't you it's it's harder at times to understand what's being said even though it is much clearer than what had come before um there was the 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 at that point by the time you hit the 1600s this excessive use of word painting which if you guys remember that mm-hmm. from last time yeah. <laughs> to where it started to take a it started to cheapen the lyrics and um it was the it was the pop writing cliche of its time yes and so they just they felt that there was just something missing they it, their music wasn't eliciting this emotional response from the audience the way that they saw that greek and roman music did and so they're like how can we how can we write something that is going to resonate with listeners and not just be like oh this is cool or what really was kind of the big focus was to show how great of a composer the writer was to say, Mm. look how intricate and complex my music is. And that being more of the focus rather than the words themselves being so easy to comprehend and understand that it affects the listener in a more spiritual way. Mm. And so there was a conference of some of the great musical minds of the late 1500s, early 1600s. And um, they pretty much created the idea of opera. And what they did was they realized, and we had talked about this uh, in our Greek episode, how whenever they put on stage plays, it was most likely inferred that they were actually sung rather than spoken that all of the Greek tragedies that we have quite possibly had music to accompany them, whether it was freestyle or if the music was actually annotated, we don't know because the music hasn't survived except for, I think one of the songs in our Greek set was an excerpt from a play where a little bit of the music survived. Um, So what they started to do was they had the plays because theater was starting to become very big around this time because again we talked about how the the late renaissance period was the time of shakespeare and these other great playwrights so theater was starting to become a very big thing again it became kind of you know because music still wasn't like the big artistic endeavor for people of high society to go enjoy theater was kind of that main thing Hmm. so what they started to do they started to incorporate music into these theater productions they first started off by doing like uh, they would do songs like at the act breaks but then in the actual dialogue in the middle it would still be spoken but they would use the music to kind of like break up the sex like have a chorus line come in and what they were finding was that people were much more engaged and connected to the musical sections than the spoken parts that that was what people were coming to see were the musical spots Mm. and so they thought well what if 
we had them sing everything. What if the whole thing was music? We marry music and theater together and we have opera, which is the Italian word for work. A like a work. Like someone presents a piece of work, it is an opera. Oh. Because it, it is an immense labor to create an opera. Um, the first several operas were not super successful. And also we don't have the works anymore. They didn't survive to the modern era. The first opera that we know of existing was called Daphne. And I believe it came out in like... Uh, came out I think in 1600 and what they have found in the excerpts that have survived was that they the the music wasn't grand like they only had like four instruments that were being played it was much more troubadourish and the melodies were not strictly created it was more this in between talking and singing where it was it was not super tuneful you didn't have these motifs that were returning or these very specific melodic lines it was kind of more like someone was freestyle singing and so and and then of course you have this very small music accompaniment and so these were not generally well liked but then when Claudio Monteverde came along our our good friend that we talked about in our previous music history episode he was the first one to really take it to the level that we know of as opera now where he had a giant 40 piece orchestra and he very meticulously crafted all the music both instrumental and vocal together and tied the music in with the words to have them to where there is some word painting, but not in a distracting way and having the mood of the music match the mood of what's being said to have these themes that connected like, um, the uh, so the the opera we're talking about is uh, Lorfia, which translates to Orpheus, which is a um, a a bit of a retelling of a Greek legend. And the the main character Orpheus is known for being the greatest uh, lute player. He's a he's a demigod, pretty much, and uh, which a demigod means that he is the offspring of a god and a mortal. And his his godlike power is that he's the greatest singer and musician in the land. Hmm. That he can that he can soothe any man, beast, or god, so if he should so choose. And so you'll notice things like whenever Orpheus is singing, you'll usually always hear a lute being played. They also will reserve more of the complex and grand melodies for him because obviously he should have the, the biggest, grandest melodies. Hmm. So there's it kind of limits your path. Kind of have a got to have a good singer to do that. Yes. So there's things like that to where there's there's a lot of thought that Claudio Monteverde put into the way that the music and the words marry each other. It's not just 
oh, here's a tune that happens to go with the words, which is how the first couple of operas went. Mm-hmm. So this was, and I've, I've read a lot of things saying that not only was this the first great opera, this is considered one of the great operas of all time. That this is an opera that has rarely been matched. That And this was the first opera that he ever wrote. And he ended up writing, I think, 12 more. Are they all just as good? Um, Not all of them have survived. And I have not researched what the other ones are yet. But from just whatever, from a lot of the things that I've heard and read, that L'Orfeo is like a top shelf opera. That it it can go toe-to-toe with even the more sophisticated ones, quote-unquote, that come in the later periods. That it was just amazing that on his first try, he created one of the greatest of all time. Wow. So, really, this is opera's true beginning. Even though there were some experimental ones that came before, this uh, Lorfeo is opera's kind of grand debut. Debut album. Hmm. So that's that's wow. kind of the history of what's uh, this this genre that we will return to many times throughout this series because in each in oh. each period the opera changes. So this might be, uh, you know, a little bit too quick, but would it be worth going into kind of the Lorfeo like what it's about? Yeah, be worth well, talking about now. Yeah, we'll give an we'll give an overview, and then we'll kind of get into the specifics as we get into the songs. Yeah. So Orpheus, and I'm gonna I'm gonna really try and um, say this name right. Um, Orpheus is in love with a nymph named Eurydice. I think that's I think that's the way you say it. Um, he has fallen in love with her has won her over with his song and the the whole play starts off with their marriage and the first act is full of this this immense amount of bliss and love and it's there's not really much that happens it's all kind of just introducing the characters and introducing mm-hmm. this this um this concept of Orpheus at the height of his happiness and really just setting you up like just really pushing it in your face of how happy he is so that way when you get to act two when Eurydice uh, is bitten by a poisonous snake and dies that he immediately is taken down to the lowest of lows and at the end of act two he makes a resolution that he is going to go down to Hades and convince the gods to bring her back. So he's going to travel to hell it, itself to... It's kind of like a Dante's Inferno. Kind of thing. Yes, there's there's definitely a lot of Dante's Inferno inspiration. Because you, you have the beginning of Act 3 where uh, a spirit guides him down and he sees that famous sign of abandon all hope ye who enter here. And he... Act 3 is him trying to... Um, to convince the the riverboat man, uh, Charon, to let him cross the river Styx, even though he is not dead. 
and eventually he doesn't he doesn't convince uh Charon, but instead his music is played so well that he lulls him to sleep. And so he's just he steals his boat and ends up crossing the river. And um uh, I gotta I gotta look up these all these names. Uh, um so Hades wife and I'm gonna find her name in just a second. Uh Proserpine? I think that's how you say it. Again. Let's go with that. Um, she has been watching Orpheus this whole time and becomes very uh, enamored with his love. Like is very much just like, look, this is a this is a man that knows true love and, and is rooting for him. And so she pleads to Pluto, who is, you know, he's the equivalent of of the devil. He's the ruler of the underworld, and. She convinces him to let him have his wish, to let Eurydice come back. And he says, okay, but on one condition. He, when he returns, when he leaves here, he must not look behind him to see if she is following him. Because if he turns around, then she will stay in the, in the underworld forever. And so, uh, of course, you can probably guess what happens. He yep. turns around, and she is indeed behind him, and she disappears, and he loses her forever. And then in Act 5, um, his, his godfather, godfather, uh, Apollo, um, pretty much kind of gives him the moral of the whole opera that he was a master of um, his instrument, that he was this man that achieved what was considered the impossible. He was able to convince Pluto to let go one of his souls, and yet he was defeated by himself. He could not contain his emotion. And because of that, because he was not able to uh, temper himself that that is why he lost. But he tells him, as a consolation prize, I'll let you ascend to godhood, and your your and Eurydice's story will be written in the stars. But she stays, but she in, stays hell. in hell. So it's kind of like it's a it's a win lose situation. It's a it, that's a real lose situation. Yeah. For him, man. And so that's pretty much the overall uh, overview of the story. It's very interesting. There's a lot of interesting elements in play there. Mm-hmm. That's so sad. But it definitely, it definitely sounds pretty froggy. <laughs> I, I think that, well, I think it's because this is the kind of stuff that Prague drew from. Draw, draws from, yeah, yeah, yeah. You were you were saying earlier that. Um, as we go through each time period, the opera is going to change. Yes. Right? Um, is is this kind of mythological basis characteristic of this time period? Um, yeah. I mean, just again with the Renaissance and also the Baroque period to a certain degree as well. It's just it's all about kind of 
you know, emulating the Greeks and the Romans. So they borrow a lot of their legends, a lot of their heroes, because they're they're trying to not just um, create something that stands beside what they did, but to try and surpass it. And the Romantic era is where that changes. Where I would say it's, the I would say it's the classical period when it really starts to change. Really? Okay. But then okay. definitely, I forget the classical period exists. Yeah, but then <laughs> definitely, when you get to the Romantic period, it just becomes you know all bets are off, no rules. Yeah. No. Is rules. this technically? Are we considering this uh, Renaissance? No this this is a Baroque piece. This is the piece that gets us from the Renaissance to the Baroque period. So once after this episode, okay. we're gonna stay a while in the Baroque. We'll probably stay here for like four months. So this instrumentation is what we should expect. Yes, this is. I mean, when you guys have heard that once the music comes in, it's all of a sudden this is something brand new. Sure. When yeah, when yeah. you guys hit play on that first track, it was a like, oh, okay, this feels like like we're kind of finally in that period of music. Yeah. Kind of almost what we've been yeah. what we've been waiting to get to. Big landmark moment in music history. Yes, I was. I didn't know it originated from Lorfeo because like the instrumentation was made for the opera, and uh-huh. then people just copied it. Yeah, like this was yeah, this was the first um time that you had this many musicians all playing together and this is this is really kind of the first orchestra. Wow. So Lorfeo was was very important for lots of different reasons. Wow. Kind of a funny irony that the play is about like the best musician of ever and it was such a landmark oh, piece true. in music history. Uh-huh. Very good point. So, Lucas, where did, yeah. before you started looking into Lorfeo, I know we usually do bands' first thoughts on a scale of one to ten, but like opera in general, where did you, where would you have put yourself on a scale of one to ten? Um, I would have put myself at like a six. I've had a little bit of exposure to opera before, mostly in my um, in my previous kind of runs through music history. I remember there was one opera that I was forced to watch when I was in like second grade and I'm and I'm really puzzled as to why our teacher did this because most second graders would not want to sit through an opera but I remember being fascinated by it uh, it was Aida which we would not talk about until the romantic period uh, but I remember thinking that that was pretty cool but then I literally had not seen a single opera since then until like even then I've never seen an opera live um I know like a lot of the famous opera moments like some of the great overtures and some of the great arias um and I and I like it whenever I hear it but I'm I've not yet been someone that's like I'm gonna just go turn on an opera to go listen to it for fun but I but I don't I don't turn it off if ever it is on. And in, in, in this case, listening to this and learning on, I guess I'll save that more for when we get to final thoughts. You know, I I feel like now I, I'm going to know what to expect and how to listen to it going forward. But I would say before this, I would put myself at a six. I knew a little bit about it, and I definitely have a positive disposition, but my my previous knowledge was quite limited. 
All right. Grant, what do you what do you think? Well, I have I have a real quick question. You used the word aria. Yes. What is that? An aria is a uh, it's pretty much like a solo piece. It's like your oh, so like a soliloquy. A soliloquy, but in song form. It's it's usually the 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 big moment for whoever is the either the star male lead or female lead to kind of like have their big moment, like their big song where they get to really show off what they can do. But usually and a turning point thematically. Yeah. And, but assume. arias are always solos. They're done, you know, there's you're not gonna they're not gonna be duets. Um so it's but arias actually don't exist yet in this phase of opera. The aria is something that really gets invented in the classical period. All right. So none, okay. none of the none of the songs here are arias. Okay, so my first thoughts as far as opera goes, I would probably be a one. Oh. No, I wouldn't be a one. I wouldn't be a one. I would be a two because at the very least I know that there's a lot of um especially vocal training that goes into being able to just sing opera, which I can um, respect. And like operatic voices are always very strong, um, which is like, you know, that's pretty cool. But I just, yeah, I just, <laughs> before this episode, I just, no, <laughs> I don't know. It's just something really irrational and just this, primal negativity that I have against operas for some reason. And yet other forms of opera, like the like the the type of opera we're talking about right now, had we not been doing this for the podcast or be doing the music history or anything, I would have just completely forgotten about it. I I would not care. But at the same time, you know, there are Prague operas and there's, you know, movie quote-unquote operas, right, which are not exactly the same style, but they're considered operas that I love, right? I mean, you could say Star Wars is a space opera, and I like Star Wars, you know? I mean, who doesn't? Um, but this kind of opera, you know, if we weren't doing the music history and the podcast wasn't here and I wasn't following along with everything, I would have retched at the idea of listening through an opera. Very interesting. So the, it'll that's that's the lowest uh, rating you've ever given anything. Yeah, I think that's. Yeah. I think a two is the lowest rating we've ever had. Yeah, I think I want to. I think I want to save the the um, rating of one for Journey, but um, or Nickelback. Nickelback. I'll save it for Nickelback. Um, but uh, yeah. the faded Nickelback yeah. episode. I just have no. to or Limp Biscuit, you know. We could have a Limp Biscuit episode, just so we can like talk about why it's bad. We could just have it switched, right? Bad music podcast and then even worse music podcast. <laughs> okay, anyway, that's that's my that's my first thoughts. I don't want to put it as low as a one because I recognize there's a lot of work involved as well. Yeah. All right, Ethan. I would say I'm probably Again, I'm excited for next week, but but like having before listening through the songs, I probably would put myself to four. I 
probably for similar reasons as as Grant. I I must. There's kind of a, especially our generation. It's like whenever we grew up watching cartoons, like if they wanted to show off like the really snooty, snobby, boring thing that adults did, they would like do opera, you know? Yeah. And they'd put the, you know, the fat lady singing in the Viking helmet and the, you know, the whole, they would just, that, that was kind of like this, the stigma of, of opera for, yeah. The, yeah. That's the probably where it came from. Opera was like, Oh, opera's really boring and it's really highbrow. And, they always do the funny thing where she hits the super high note and it breaks the glass and everybody in the crowd is squinting because it's bad, you know? So I definitely had some of those feelings coming in because, like, I feel like culturally they were kind of ragging on opera for a long time. <laughs> uh, oh, Looney Tunes and opera were the worst in <laughs> But I, I, I think... Um, knowing the story going in is helpful because like looking at it more like it's, it's a musical is helpful. Yeah. I think whenever people think of opera, they, there's a very stylistic element to it that people associate, but looking at it is like, this is just a musical, but it's like the very first ones. And so of course the singing style is going to be a lot different, you know, because it's a long time ago. Yeah. Um, it's it's hard for people to get into operas because it requires work because you're not going to understand what because it, it's always in a different language. There's not any English speaking operas really, and so if we're going to go to an opera, unless you just really really love the sound of it, you're going to want to like kind of study up and know what it's about before you go. And. Yeah, and that just, I think that, you know, people think, oh, I'm just going to go and I'm going to hear a bunch of people belt out words that I don't understand, and it's just going to be boring. But, so I think knowing the story, knowing the writing, the composition is really good, but I think before this, I would have probably been, I'm at a four, I, I don't think I would go out to an opera, you know, I don't think I would proactively seek, um, that as entertainment you know ethan i'm glad you mentioned musicals because i used to hate musicals just as much and then i like participated in a few of them when i was in high school Mm -hmm. you know both on the cast side and on the tech side and on the musician Mm -hmm. side and that made me enjoy them more and now i would consider myself a musical person like obviously a musician musical person but like i like musicals so maybe, you know, I guess we'll just have to wait for final thoughts, you know. Just saying. All right. We- well, I think that that puts us at a uh, at a pretty good starting place to, yes. to kind of really dig in unless you guys had anything else you either wanted to say or to ask. I think I'm ready. I'm All right, ready. so we'll take a break. And when we come back... We are going to talk about some songs from Lorfeo. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. We just finished talking about Lorfeo, which is the first greatest opera in all of music history. And it's time to talk about the songs that we've selected from that opera for this episode. So, 
We're doing something a little bit different for this episode, and I'll let Lucas explain what's going on. So this is something that we're going to try out, and I think that it's going to be uh, fun for us, and I think potentially fun for you guys as well. So um, starting next week, this is going to be completely blind. They're not even going to know what the songs are, but we're going to listen to them live. You won't be able to hear them on the podcast because for legal reasons we and copyright, we cannot play it on. Exactly. Uh, but there's a link in the description of the episode that takes you to a Spotify playlist they're going to count down and hit play at the same time. They're going to be listening to the songs live, and we're going to be discussing them as they're listening. You guys can do that as well. Um, if you have the ability to be able to listen to us and listen to the music at the same time, you'll pretty much be an exact sync of um, what everyone else is doing. And so I think that this is going to be a fun way. Um, normally I pick a nice group of six I couldn't really do that with this episode. Um, I kind of, I, there were certain things I knew I needed to do. So we have five songs from each of the five acts. We have two songs that kind of combine together to form the prologue, as well as a extra song at the end uh, to kind of be our, um, our conclusion. So there's really eight songs total. And I'm not going to get into super, um, you know, saying, oh, well, I'll combine these two to make one song and blah, blah, blah. Just, we'll just say there's eight songs this time. It's necessary to kind of get through. And even still, there's so much great music in this opera that we don't even get to talk about. So, um, yeah, so that's what we're going to do. And gentlemen, when you're ready, you guys can count down and we're going to begin discussion. Here, count us down, Lucas. You can give us the good old countdown. All right, here we go in three, two, one. So we're starting off with our instrumental intro, our toccata. Overtures were not yet a thing in opera. For those of you that uh, don't know what an overture is in opera, normally that's going to be the part where the orchestra plays before any of the actors come out on stage that will introduce all of the musical themes that you're going to hear throughout the opera. That's not the point of this. Really, this was Monteverde's um, assertion to just let you know that this opera was going to be huge, it was going to be grand, and that is going to demand your attention. The horns are very happy. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's that really big... Um fifth interval well i mean isn't that what an what a uh overture is supposed to do is like grab your attention yes but overture also accomplishes the the main point of an overture is to get you familiar with the musical themes you'll hear oh right and this you this theme is sparingly used in the opera i've heard i've heard it kind of used but it's very much changed it's not immediately recognizable as the Takata mm -hmm. mm -hmm. and so you can't really point to this as an overture again mm -hmm. overtures I believe it's really in the romantic period when overtures kind of reach their zenith one thing I want to do is do an entire episode eventually on just the great overtures because you'll be surprised by how many of the great songs that you would be familiar with come from overtures. All right. So now we're moving into the prologo or the prologue. 
I would assume. Yes, the so return curtain LA. rises here. I assume. Yes. Uh huh. So, very, so this is the wedding. No, so the prologue is actually um, is from a sung from the perspective of a character that we actually only see here. She does not return at all. She is La Musica. Hmm. She is the she is the personification of music. And what she is she's addressing the audience directly. This is a fourth wall break. She's pretty much acting like the narrator. Okay. She's saying, "I am music who with sweet sounds knows how to calm every troubled heart and now to noble anger, now to love can kindle the most icy souls." And she eventually says, my desire now is to tell you of Orpheus, of Orpheus who held the wild beast spellbound with his song, who even subdued hell with his pleading and won the immortal fame of Pindos and Helicon. So she's pretty much this is she's inviting everyone to come and listen to this story, as well as to talk about how powerful music is, which is a bit of a meta moment because this is the biggest flexing of musical ability at this point ever in history. Yeah. Mm. This is, this is kind of that, that theme is strong song. The theme is so good. Mm-hmm. And this theme actually, this, you could call that this is the main theme of uh, Lorfeo. This theme returns more so than any other one and returns in lots of really cool interesting ways. So this is Orpheus's theme. This is really you could say this is music's theme. Oh. Because because this theme usually pops up whenever m- music is being used for something. Okay. Like, so this is like the Okay, I get it. Because um, he he eventually has his own theme, but it's it's not used as much. The idea of individual characters having their own themes really also was not a thing until the Romantic period, mm-hmm. where you have this what what's called a leet motif, mm-hmm. where and i mean the the best example to use that is to look at star wars where you you know anytime you hear that uh, imperial march you know that darth vader or the empire is on screen right yeah. or you know you'll have where you have two characters in a scene and both of their themes are playing and intertwining and and yeah, interacting so with each other so great that's that is an idea in opera that doesn't really come around until the romantic period. Okay. Wagner in particular is the one that really um brought it to its fullest potential. Yeah. But there's a little the the seeds of it are sown here. Yeah. He's doing it a little bit. Yes. He's just now, committing as much as the later guys do. Uh-huh. Now, I mean, as you can hear you, we've got a lot of new instruments. Yes, we still don't quite have the the final versions of a lot of the instruments we're familiar with. Like we still have kind of more of the the predecessor versions of our violins and our trumpets and our cellos. But I would say the most important instrument of the Baroque period is the harpsichord. Oh yeah, the harpsichord is very important to this. 
to this opera as well as the Baroque period in general. It's kind of the first real keyboard instrument. And it was kind of like the go-to instrument. That and what eventually the violin. Violin would kind of become its full version around the middle of the Baroque period. Uh, and the piano would really not come into effect until the late classical period. We talked a little bit about that in our Beethoven episode. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the harpsichord was like the thing. Mm. Yeah, this the string arrangement because that theme just hit again. And it's just like every time it hits, it's just like it's it does grab me. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. It's it's so catchy. So yeah, now we're in a place now where we have hooks like. This is such a huge step. And solo singing, I think, mm-hmm. is, is to not have to have to arrange a choral performance anytime that you want to get a vocal line across. Yes. Mm-hmm. The whole point of that, again, is to for, for the, all the words to be understood. It's important. Yeah. F- and also, they, they arranged it. If you think back on madrigal music... Um, you would not ever think that the the rhythm that they're singing is the way that they would talk as well. It's very choppy, right. it's very runny. Um, a whole elongated syllables. Yes. Yeah. The the idea around opera, one of the big things they were wanting to change and in, in the creation of opera was to have um, singing that adopted more of if you were to have someone speaking this in a dramatic playwright sense would it be in the same rhythm and and tone yeah so just it's, matching syllables with more speaking tones which uh-huh. we still use today in our singing yeah so someone who's more excited is going to sing faster or someone who's maybe more lamenting is going to sing slower or mm-hmm. kind of thing yeah you could imagine if it was just talking that it would that would be a lot of the same rhythm okay. and that you wouldn't have words that would be put in these weird rhythm phrasings mm-hmm. all right we're into our third song we're into so the this, first... is act, this is actually towards the end of act one so this is after um after orpheus has gotten a chance to um uh to profess his love for Eurydice and we have this really beautiful um this really beautiful string section I guess you could call this the love theme mm-hmm. if you wanted to really start to give themes to things um really in the first act a lot of talking is not done by Orpheus and Eurydice it's a lot of their uh their shepherd friends. And so what's being said here is let nobody fall prey to despair, surrender to grief, even though it assails us so powerfully that it endangers our life. For after the the terrible clouds laden with dark storms have frightened the world, the sun shines all the more brightly. And after the bitter frost of bare winter, the spring closes the fields with flowers. Here is Orpheus, for whom sighs were once food and weeping was drink. Today he is so happy that nothing more remains for him to desire. Wow. Well, foreshadowing. Yes. 
pretty much it's again the whole point of act one is to tee us up do we know why he was so sad before because um he is the whole point of orpheus's character is that he is a man of extremes oh so he's just a mood swing guy he's a very mood swing guy and so because he didn't have the love of his life he was so unbearably lonely he was Uh... he's the whole one of his at the beginning of act two before he finds out about her death he he does he has this song where he talks about how it's so much sweeter to go through immense misery because then you enjoy the the bliss even more because you know you knew what it was like to drink the cup of sorrow that now the cup of happiness is that much sweeter it's kind of messed up but and literally in the middle of that song is when the messenger comes and says she's dead wow wow yeah it's his his whole thing and what apollo tells him at the end of the thing is that not only did you love too greatly but you mourned too greatly as well that you know you you had no control and no moderation in within yourself you were either all or nothing hmm. and even when you look at what Eurydice tells him, because um, he gives her this huge romantic poem gesture, she pretty much responds to him as just like, you know, cause, and he's, he's begging her to reciprocate. And she's like, you know how I feel. Um, like, you know, it's like we we're in love. I don't have to tell you all these things. It's kind of almost, she's kind of almost telling him to calm down a little bit, but he's just <laughs> so excited that he can't help himself. It feels like a love, a he's a lovable character, though. Yeah, I mean, at this, this point, choir is no... insane. Uh-huh. Yeah, these dynamics are ridiculous. Oh, oh, wait for the next one. The next one, it gets real good, but see. That's, that's, I think, something to be noted as well, is because this is like our first instance of real good choir um, composition in this whole set, mm-hmm. right? And so now you notice it more and you appreciate it more, which is not, not meant to be consistent with what Lucas was just saying, but it is, you know? So. Yeah, that, oh, Wow. Yeah, and the suspensions. Yeah, just depending on the one. All right, we're in the fourth song now. We're in Act Two. So this is this is the uh, the end of Act Two. This is um, uh, his deciding to go down into uh, hell itself to um, to get his beloved back. Mm-hmm. He's saying, "You are dead, my life." And am I breathing? You have left me. Nevermore, no return, and I remain? No, no. If my verses have any power at all, I will surely go down to the deepest abysses. And having softened the heart of the King of Shadows, lead you back with me to the Sea of the Stars. Or, if impious fate denies me this, I shall remain with you in the company of death. Farewell, Earth. Farewell, Sky. And Sun, farewell. 
and then you have the chorus that says, ah, bitter occurrence, ah, wicked and cruel fate, ah, unjust stars, ah, miserly heaven. Do not trust, O mortal man, the perishable and frail happiness which soon vanishes, and often in a great ascent the precipice is near. Hmm. So there's kind of, again, they, they, they're, they're, anytime the chorus comes in, they're usually kind of commentating. Yeah, I figured that it was kind of like, n- not necessarily foreshadowing what's to come, but putting meaning to... They're giving the insight. Right. Right. The little, the study Bible liner notes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, whenever that chorus melody comes in, it's actually um, it is reprised several times throughout the second act, Const- oh, wow. constantly as um, uh, mm-hmm. as kind of the because the whole a big part of the second act is she's telling the story of what happened, um, and for a while Orpheus doesn't say anything when he speaks. In so this moment, yeah, when mm-hmm. he speaks at the beginning of this song, that's like the first time that he speaks since hearing about it because he's dumbstruck. Mm-hmm. And this is kind this of like choir. this choir arrangement is great. Yeah, it sounds very mournful, but at the same time, like objective. You know, uh huh. Like sad thing happened, but you know. That's life, I guess. It's like an anger, like a, a little bit. Especially when, especially when his voice comes back in. You know, it sounds. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's just part of the delivery, but it sounds like he wants to belt it out, and isn't. Like he's holding himself back from like really expressing the the grief. Mm-hmm. Or maybe that maybe that's just the dynamic um, guidance that was given to the vocalist at that point, or maybe that's just the way that they chose to deliver it. But that's the that's the feeling that I'm getting. Yeah, and then yeah, you have you notice at the end we have the return of the the music's theme. Oh, you're right. You're right. I'm not there yet. Forgot about, yeah, we're not there yet. But we're not there yet. <laughs> but I forgot about that. Yeah. Well, now, now you have you can anticipate it, and it it's a lot. Um, it's a lot sad. Or yes, more sad. It's, it's it's a brilliant recapitulation because it's because originally when you when you first hear that melody at the beginning of the opera, it's it's almost like you can tell it's a little sad, but you don't have this really sad undercurrent with it. Right. But when you hear it in this context at this point, all of a sudden it is like it's heart crushing. Yeah. But at the same time, this you can feel it's the it's this determination. Music is what he's going to use to go and um to win his love back. Ooh, the power yeah. the power yeah. of music that she was describing in the prologue is now going to be used against the forces of hell itself. Ooh. Ooh. That's a good theme <laughs> right there. That two just changed to a three. Uh, <laughs> maybe maybe it's the choir again. 
Yeah, there's that choir coming in again. That's true. But but it's so weird because when the choir like first opens up, like when they first come in, it's huge minor chords. And then there's some uses of like major and then some suspensions. And so it doesn't sound completely mournful because it also resolves to a major. Yeah, it resolves to that major. Right. And then here we go back into that uh, music theme. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like this theme is almost like, I can imagine like, almost like the curtains close. And it's just like, you're just left with the music, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah, true, true, true. Just to sit At, in the moment of the music. Is that a, there's a bit of loot in there. I, I heard the loot. Which <laughs> uh-huh. again, that's, that's, anytime you hear the loot, that is always signaling of of Orpheus because that is his instrument. So that's, that's the end of act two right there. Mm-hmm. So now we get into act three and this is at the beginning of act three. Okay. Um, this is a conversation between the, uh, the spirit of hope who is the one that guides Orpheus into the underworld and Orpheus himself. Mm-hmm. So it starts with hope and she says, here is the dark marsh, here the boatman, who ferries naked souls to the other bank, where Pluto rules his vast empire of shades. Beyond that black swamp, beyond that river, in those fields of tears and sorrow, cruel destiny hides your beloved. You now need to have a brave heart and a fair song. I have brought you here, but further I may not. Come with you, for harsh law forbids it, a law written with iron on hard stone at the dreaded entrance to the kingdom below, that in these words expresses its terrible meaning. Abandon all hope, you who enter. Therefore, if your heart is determined to set foot in the city of grief, I must flee from you and return to my accustomed abode. And Orpheus responds, Where, ah, where are you going? Only sweet comfort of my heart. Now that at last the destination of my long journey appears nearby, why do you leave and abandon me? Ah, alas, on this perilous path. What good now remains for me if you flee, sweetest hope? So there's a bit of a double meaning there. It's not just that spirit departing, yeah. but it's his hope leaving. This is this is when he reaches his lowest point because he is not yet sure that what he is doing is going to work he's never attempted to try and use his music to to sway the immortal Hmm. and so this is this is the point where he could be turned back for good this is this is this is the real battle is because pluto by the time he gets to pluto pluto's already decided he's going to give him his request with the condition but his the big battle of this Opera is between him and the river boat Charon. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And so, so it's not even like the big bad. No, because the big bad is himself. Uh huh. Wow. So wow. Yeah, but at this rough. point, hope leaves. Phys- literally and figuratively. Yeah, so that's the, the callback to abandon all hope. All you who abandon all hope, yeah, it's true. It's it's so great when you when you start to know the context. Like you know, if you're if you're not familiar with Dante's Inferno, it's just like that can be almost a, a meaningless 
phrase, but it's just it's so interesting to see how it's everything connects. All these different pieces of art all work together. Hmm. <laughs> that is the hope awesome. song is very tranquil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But when, oh, when it switches ooh. to Orpheus, it becomes very intense. Yeah, it just switched. It just switched. Really wow. harsh instruments. Mm-hmm. And I hear the lute. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you'll you'll train yourself. That's the way. Even if you if I wasn't telling you that it's Orpheus, that's always the 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 little hint that Orpheus is speaking as you'll hear that lute. Okay. Mm. Well, the the prevailing thing right here, I think, is the harpsichord. Mm-hmm. It sounds very strummy. Oh, there's the lute. There it is. Strummy. Right at the end. Well, it just sounds like someone's strumming a steel guitar. Well, I'm not used to a harpsichord, so don't get Yeah, har- har- harpsichord. All right, next song. All right, yeah. so this is the beginning of Act 4. Um, this is the conversation between uh, Proserpina and Pluto. Oh, we skipped the whole battle with the fairy boat, man. Yes, we did. Uh, I guess we can't have, we can't have it all. I guess we will never know who wins. Well, I told you guys in the first section who wins. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, obviously, this whole the whole point of this is you guys should listen to the whole thing. In fact, right. you should find it on YouTube. They've, there's several full versions of it. It's very How interesting. How long? Oh, and you can watch it as you go. Yeah. It's about two hours. How long is the opera itself? About two hours. Oh, that's a pretty good runtime. Yeah. Um, so it's it's very cool to see when you, after hearing all of it, to finally see it with visuals. Mm. And also, every version on YouTube is completely different because operas don't typically aren't specific in like the costume and the stage direction oh that's awesome so it's there's there's a lot of cool interpretation that happens okay so let's talk about what's being said here i I think it's just important for me to just read everything that's happening yeah because this is also this is the longest one in our set yeah right half minutes so we start with proserpina And she's talking to Pluto. Lord, that unfortunate man, who though these rugged fields of death goes calling for Eurydice, whom you have just heard so sweetly lamenting, has moved my heart to such pity that once more I turn to pray that your spirit will yield to his pleading. Ah, if from these eyes you have ever taken loving sweetness, if the fairness of this brow has pleased you, that you call your heaven on which you swear to me not to envy Jovi his lot. I beg you, by that fire with which love kindled your great soul, let Eurydice return to enjoy those days, which she used to pass living in festivities and in song, and console the weeping of wretched Orpheo. Pluto responds, Although severe and immutable fate is against your desires, beloved wife, Nothing ever can be refused. Such beauty, together with such prayers, his dear Eurydice, against the command of fate, Orpheo may recover. But before he draws away from these abysses, he must never turn his desirous eyes to see her, 
since her eternal loss will be caused by a single glance. So I do command, now in my kingdom, officers, make known my will, so that Orpheo may understand it, and Eurydice understand it, nor may anyone hope to change the decree. And the chorus responds, For those dwellers in eternal shadows, powerful king, let your order be law. Our thoughts must not seek other inmost reasons for your will. While through these terrible caverns Orpheo will lead his bride, he will use his judgment if he is not overcome by youthful desire, nor forgets your solemn imperial orders. Proserpina replies, What thanks may I give you, now that so noble a boon you grant to my prayers, courteous lord? Blessed be the day that I first pleased you, blessed my abduction and the sweet trickery, since to my good fortune I won you losing the sun. And Pluto said, Your sweet words, love's ancient wound, revives in my heart. Let your soul no more long for heavenly delight, thus to abandon your marriage bed. So quite a quite a bit being said here. Yeah, that's a lot. But we have the uh I think it's an interesting observation that what the whole reason this happened is because um she saw um uh, Orpheus's uh battle with Charon. In if you if you look at the end of Act Three, he regards really um his fight with Charon is not a victory. Even though he does get to cross, he was hoping that his song would move Charon. And Charon pretty much tells him just like, listen, you're not, this isn't working on me. I don't have any pity to give. You're barking up the wrong tree in a sense. That's a line. And, um, and so he's, he really is kind of defeated because he's thinking if I didn't move Charon, who is a mere gatekeeper, how will I convince the Lord of the underworld who must be even crueler? But really the person that he achieved victory over was Proserpina. Yeah. Because she is the only one that could sway Pluto's mind to let him have Eurydice. And they haven't met his names. She's just, she's just observing what's happening and, She's basically asking Pluto. Yeah, she's moved by it. She, as she says, she pities him. She calls him wretched Orpheo. But they've they've never met. No, they haven't met. No, she's just she's just seeing the events unfold and just going, huh? Look at this. Someone has come to the underworld, and man, he's a good singer too. We should give him what he wants. <laughs> now. <laughs> Pluto is not someone that would just have a soft spot. I think the whole reason, like, you would almost think, man, he got really lucky that he gave him a condition that Orpheus just happened to not be able to keep. Mm -hmm. I think the whole thing, and what I've read, is that Pluto knew exactly what his weakness was and was betting on the fact that he was going to lose. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Like, it's not just an arbitrary thing. Just like, oh, this is the rules of hell. If you try and take someone back, that this is this is the thing. Like, mm-hmm. this was—he didn't—he didn't do this out of the goodness of his heart. He did it knowing that he was going to get to continue uh, 
And then he could just tell his wife, just like, well, I tried. He's the one that messed it up. I decided to do something nice for him. Wow. Manipulative. Uh Uh-huh. Which is exactly what you would expect of the god of the underworld. Right. Yeah, because as I'm listening to this song, it's like, even whenever he's talking, it's like the music isn't like sinister. Mm -mm. Because isn't the, the lore here that his wife is from heaven? Wasn't there some trickery with that? I believe as well? so. Cause she would be able to feel those good feelings because she doesn't originate from the underworld. Mm-hmm. And then she goes to her husband who kind of tricked her into marrying him. You yeah. Know? Um and she's like, Oh, please do this thing and he's like, Yeah, sure, but this is the condition. And she's like, You're so nice and he's like Thanks. <laughs> He's like, Yeah, I know I am. Thanks. <laughs> while while he secretly knows what's going to happen, right? Um, also, I this this is, happens later in Act Four, but I think that this is this is very interesting. Um, Orpheus's song before he makes his grave mistake, after when he is walking out of the underworld, knowing that Eurydice is behind him, he, he does not sing a song to her. He doesn't sing a song to Pluto saying, gee, thank you so much. This is unprecedented. He doesn't sing to the gods for giving him his ability. He sings to himself and sings to his leer, his, his leer and sings a song about how awesome he is. Wow. He, he, he all of a sudden gets to this point of pure arrogance and it's at that point that Pluto creates a sound behind him, and he turns to look and sees her. Ooh. Well, with that, All right, we just, we just got to the next song. We missed a real good choral part there. Wow. Uh, that was like Lord of the Rings level choir right there. Ooh, that was good. Oh yeah, that was, was that nice at the end of the previous one? That yeah, that yeah. was all the servants of hell. Yeah. Saying that they would obey the uh, pity today and love both triumph and Hades. All right, but we're on Act Five now. Yes. Um. So this is uh, I believe this is the conversation between uh, Orpheus and Apollo. So we don't get the moment where he looks back. We don't get anything from. No, we don't. Unfortunately, with the, with the way that this album is cut up, like that scene is split up between different songs. Oh, I know that's. But lame. again, you gotta this this will drive you to go listen to the whole thing. True. Um, so Apollo descends on a cloud, singing, "Why a prey to anger and grief do you so freely give yourself, O son? It is not. It is not the wisdom of a generous heart." to serve its own affliction since with blame and danger already i see you overcome i come from heaven to give you aid now listen to me and you shall have glory and life orpheo responds kind father you come when i am in need when to a desperate end with extreme grief anger and love has already brought me here i am then attentive to your counsels heavenly father now command me as you want And Apollo responds, too much, too much did you rejoice in your happy fate. Now too much do you weep at your bitter hard fortune. Do you still not know how nothing that delights down here will last? 
Therefore, if you want to enjoy immortal life, come with me to heaven, which invites you. Hmm. So. And that's it. And that's yep. it. I mean, there's there's a, and then we have the uh, the last song, which is kind of like our epilogue. Right. Right. Well, there's one song between these two. It seems. Uh no. Because because this is Act Four, Song Two, and or sorry, Act Five, Song Two. Our last one is Act Five, Song Four. Yeah, there's there's a there's a small little um, exchange after that. There's, ah, there's there's more okay. dialogue. It's not a proper song. No, okay. none of these really are proper songs. It's it's very arbitrary the way on this album they're cutting everything. So you kind of can't think of it, and it's it's all meant to be one continuous piece, except for obviously the breaks between the acts. Like yeah. if you were to go listen okay. to another album of this, it might be in a completely different breaking. So it's kind of like listening to Octavarium or something. It's like it's the same song, it's just different yeah. Words. It's just because again, I can't. I'm not gonna. We're not gonna talk about the entire opera in its in its entire. We'd be here way too long. Yeah, yeah. This is this is just me picking different segments. Just going okay. There's there's something interesting story wise going here. There's interesting stuff music here. This will be a good snapshot of the act itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is very peaceful. And uh-huh. great. It's 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 a bit of a happy ending. Um. And I mean, when we get to the when we get to the epilogue with the chorus, it's very upbeat. Yeah, that is true. I feel like that's kind of a kind of what's what is the like the um, like the comedy and tragedy kind uh-huh. of thing that comes. I don't know where that but where that is in history. What do you mean? Well, I mean, I'm pretty sure that. There's a specific kind of play where it's Well, like... that's I'm pretty sure that that goes all the way back to the Greek times. Where it's... it's... Yeah. Man. Um, I'm kicking myself because I don't know the name. But it's like... Uh, the Like the Divine Comedy. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty yeah. sure. Where it's like, it's really sad and it's really heavy, but it's also like, has humor in it. Nope, and here's the last song. Here we are to the last song. To the up- All right, the chorus says, "Go, Orpheo, Ooh, little tambourine. happy at last to enjoy celestial honor, where good never lessens, where there was never grief, while altars, incenses, and prayers we offer to you, happy and devoted. So goes one who does not retreat at the call of the eternal light. So he obtains grace in heaven, who down here has braved hell, and he who sows in sorrow reaps the fruit of all grace." Wow. And yeah, it just it, it ends you... on a nice upbeat note. I I felt that it would be weird to just end with Act Five. I was like, we got to have the epilogue in there to just kind of bring yeah. everything back together. I think this. Uh, what a I guess I can. <laughs> I don't even know what to talk about. <laughs> like, it's like it's such a weird moral. Yeah, because I feel like we go through this whole thing. And then kind of the the lesson from his divine father, you know, is you're, you were 
too happy at the things that you had because nothing lasts, but you're also too sad because you should have known that it wasn't going to last. So how about you just have eternal life? Yeah. It's the moral yeah. is here's the solution. That, that, that'll God. fix your problems. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that it definitely speaks to that time period. This is, it's still not a time period where emotion is loved. It's it it simultaneously demonstrates the power, emotional power of music, and yet also the folly of emotion. The strength of emotion and the folly of emotion simultaneously. Yeah. The music definitely carries a lot of emotion. I think that that in the middle of this set there were some moments that were very emotionally moving. And yet I don't know, this the story to try to say that emotion doesn't matter and yet to write music like that. I don't know, man. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's like, I feel like it's almost tongue in cheek on itself. Like it was very very self-aware in that, like they purposefully wrote a character that was so moody and purposefully had him be super brave and, and, and still moody, like hopes leaving him. Oh no, what am I going to do? You know, Mm -hmm. I did. I still didn't win. How am I going to win now? And then once he gets what he wants, he's like so happy that he's like, I'm awesome. I knew I could have done this the whole time, you know? And then he loses, like, I'm so terrible, you know? Like the whole mood swings. And then for someone to come in at the end and be like, why are you, like, your folly is is your emotions. Mm -hmm. And that it was in excess. But then I just feel like it's weird to just be like, come with me to heaven where it's all good all the time, man. (laughs) I think that. yeah, I think oh, it can right. be a symbol and then, and then... of like of Christianity, of kind of someone like the 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 pagan man can't control himself, and so it's like it's almost like he's saying accept Jesus and become spiritual and have everlasting life, and then you won't be afflicted by the things of this world anymore. Yeah. I think a lot of things were like that, where it was like, you know. And even the Bible has some stuff like that where it's like the world is like kind of I I forget the name of the the name of it like the nihil, like nihilism almost yeah, 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 where no. it's like nothing really mm-hmm. matters here ex- until we die and then we're in all of eternity and this will nothing seem like really nothing matters to me. <laughs> I don't think it's fully committing to that, but it seems like they show this big story and then the end it's like you shouldn't have been so upset or so happy and but now like come to heaven where where everything is fine <laughs> yeah you know like almost just like it's almost like the moral is crap happens but whenever you die if you're a good person or if you're religious then it'll yeah. be fine that that it's almost like there is no resolution the resolution the the learning is yeah crap happens mm-hmm. almost <laughs> and crap will happen until yeah. you die that's just a weird moral. But I mean, I feel like that that makes sense with the time period that it's in. Yeah, because I just find things... it so weird that's like after he fails, because you know, like in in modern movies, it's like there aren't very very many movies where you end uh-huh. on a fail, you know. And if in the in the movies that do end on a fail, you don't end with a song like what <laughs> we ended with, which is like, yay, it's fine. <laughs> We're dead now. Yeah, it's fine. I, I think it also just it shows how just how different the mindset was in storytelling back then. Yeah, 
super right. interesting. I'm, I'm not faulting it. I, I think it's fascinating. Yeah, That's I just mean, like I failed, and then someone comes down from heaven and is just like, "That's okay, come to heaven." The the moral <laughs> of this is like completely opposite of things you see today, uh-huh. right? I mean, like the the uh, movie Soul. If you guys have seen that, right? Like at the at the end of the movie, the moral is basically like enjoy life and enjoy the little things about life and the big things about life because you never know when you're gonna lose it. And the moral here is like, well, you're gonna lose it, so just don't care. You know, to to oversimplify both. Yeah, of don't the, care too much. Don't to, be to oversimplify both of them, right? And so it's so weird to like, I think that's why it's weird. You know, why the ending feels weird to us is because it's like, we're not used to an idea like yeah. that. Well, it was right. Our, our culture is not centered around nihilism in that mm-hmm. way. Right. So anyway, well, um, we're getting, we're getting a great set. Thought. We should, we should I, save that. It's, 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 I, I think you, Lucas, you did a good job with the set, considering that you couldn't have fit the entire two hours yeah. in it. Yeah, I, I felt like I got pretty much all of the big yeah. hit moments. We got a good mm-hmm. snapshot. It was, it was. This was really fun to do, and um, when we look at more um, important musical movements in these upcoming, we'll probably do a lot more. Um, episodes where we center around one big piece and just pick moments from it. Yeah. It'll, it'll for sure happen mm. in the next episode. So. All right. Well, I think we'll, okay. uh, I think we're going right. to take another break here. When we come back, we're going to give our final thoughts about opera. We'll see where we stand on it now and we're going to wrap things up. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Ethan. Welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. We just got done listening to the opera L'Orfeo by Mr. Claudio Monteverde. Um, And now it is time for final thoughts. Actually, before that, make sure that you go down to the link in description, listen through... um, this week's opera, even if you're not a big opera person, we're about to give our final thoughts, uh, which I hope that everybody went up a little bit. But uh, make sure you listen through it. Lucas did a really good job on the set this week. But now it's time for final thoughts. At the very beginning of the episode, we kind of said where we were before the episode, before the context, before we talked about anything opera. And now in final thoughts, it's time to, um, once we have, now that we have context, maybe our opinions have changed. So Grant... Uh, what are your final thoughts about opera? Well, as you know, I started off at a two. two. And that was, that was of course, my – I do need to qualify that, right? That was, of course, before I had listened to this at all. That was before, you know, we had decided we were going to – or Lucas decided we were going to do a opera episode, you know. My, my very uninformed opinion was at a two. Right. I still have to say that I'm relatively uninformed. I kind of know now a little bit more of what I don't know yeah. about opera. You at least know what you would be getting into. 
Right. And I, I like a lot of the things that I'm hearing. I like a lot of the musical ideas, you know, a lot of the, I guess, artistic ideas just overall, like what they're trying to achieve. And I like that a lot. And I can respect that. And I would have to say that I've moved from a two to like a five. Ooh, big jump. I, yeah. I mean, I'm not at the level that I'm going to say, oh, yeah, I, you know, appreciate opera or I'm like certainly not an opera fan but I'll have to say like I am indifferent but I'm willing to explore more I'm not necessarily at the point where I'm like ooh I gotta learn more about opera you know but I'm I'm at the very least more open now and I'm really looking forward to seeing how opera changes over the years. I think that's going to be the most interesting yeah. um, takeaway from this episode is like we have a baseline for this type of work that, you know, we can watch evolve as the rest of the music world evolves. So we can kind of, you know, experience that as well. I think that's pretty cool. Um, Favorite song? So yeah, I'm at five there. My favorite song is the one from Act Two, just because of that um, uh, that weird, objectively mournful, you know, choir, and you know the interplay between that and the and the voices, like the singular voices. I think it's just, I think it's really good musically. That's the one that um, I always looked forward to listening to. I felt myself like you know, for the first three songs being like, man, can't wait till act two. And then <laughs> the last five, I was like, man, I can't wait to start over the set so I can listen to one for act two. That's funny. So, <laughs> it, it's as simple as that. That's why it's my favorite. I would say, so I was at a four. I would probably I say I'm at like a six or a seven now. Wow. Uh, I would mainly because I think really getting into and this is going to sound so kitschy and artsy and I'm not like a very kitschy artsy person but I think opera music if I was just saying opera music by itself I would probably be at a five for granted I think the idea of opera as a whole is like a seven like I would totally if an opera came to town I would totally go at, the, wow. at this point but it, it, i think but it's also because like it's more than just music it's like also like a play mm-hmm. so it's like a show and i like shows um so i would put myself there i could see myself if an opera that i didn't even know had never heard of was coming to town i would probably go um just to pretty much go see a stage play you know, and I would do the research and read up on it, and hopefully they would have it in the pamphlet. So I am—I wouldn't say I'm like a believer or anything, but I would—I would definitely categorize like if there was an opera in town, I would definitely be like, "Hey, hey, wife, would you like to go to this opera? Do you want to get some babysitters? Go to the opera? You know, I would—I'm down. <laughs> that. I'm down to sit down and listen for two and a half hours to an opera." Okay. Which I think that we classified like I would go see them live as a seven. So I guess I'm a seven. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think my favorite song. So I will admit that I think that Grant is right that the 
song from the second act, I think is technically the best song. I think the way that it's arranged in the movement and having the choir at the end and going back into the motif is like the best, you know? Right. But my personal favorite is the prologue where we, the first time that you hear the, the, the motif for Lorfeo for for music as a whole, you know, Mm -hmm. that's just the one where it's like, and I think it's just because that line in and of itself, like, is so connected with the entirety of the of the play, you know? Like from now for forever, anytime I hear that like that line, I'm just gonna be like, oh so sad, you know? Like it it's it that's it to me is the same as ba 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 you know, it it means a lot more that that line specifically means a lot more to me. And so yeah, so I, I think I went from a, a four to a seven. So I, I think I shot up as much as Grant did. I, I went up three. I think you did, yeah. All right, well, that, that's really good to hear. Um, For me, I would say, so I started off with a six. I'd say that I am probably at an eight at this point on just opera. I mean, I, I have listened to this whole opera and did a lot of deep digging. There's, there's so much brilliant stuff that we didn't even get to talk about mainly just because we would have no context for it. Cause it's in other parts that we couldn't listen to. Um, to where I really, for the first time understood how geniusly written opera could be that's it's not just a simple scoring to the words and i mean it's just like in my brain i feel like i should have known that because i love the more modern versions of that's one of the main reasons i love the the astonishing i'm real is a true opera yeah it really is, and you and you. If you approach it that way, I think that you'll really, really enjoy it. Um, but yeah, just it really helps when you know what's going on, and just learning the story and and really just kind of paying attention to all the different musical themes. It's the first time I've ever listened to an opera, and it's just like it all feels like it comes, and it's not just like this random assortment of musical yeah. ideas yeah it's like i i see the thing now as a can as a cohesive whole mm-hmm. this is the first time that any that i feel like i've actually sat down and someone has explained to me the story and, and why the music is the way that it is mm-hmm. and it's also hard to remember like we're this is like still a music history episode but we're talking about an entire genre yeah you know <laughs> the, the creation of a genre <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. I mean, this is this is one of the most significant stepping periods in music history. I mean, this just once the music gets to this point, it's like there's no going back. And we're going to hear that throughout the Baroque period. It is just musical brilliance in a way that we have never even experienced yet in this series. I'm really, really excited to do some more operas going forward and i'm in the same boat as ethan like if if an opera comes to town i'm gonna totally go see one so um it's like literally i would be really disappointed if 
within the next two years, I did not go to an opera. Yeah, like like if especially if I heard that like I have a chance to go see Lorfeo, I'd be like, uh, <laughs> oh, I would totally go. Yeah, come on, oh, let's go see I it. So yeah. yeah, and then my favorite, I feel like I'm in the same position as Ethan, where, but I think I'm gonna flip. I think I'm gonna go with Grant and go with the Act Two, but that prologue came really close. The prologue is just is so well structured, yep. but then just every mm-hmm. everything really comes together in such an incredible pot on on that last song of Act Two. Oh, yeah, it does. Having so many, especially when you hear Act Two in its entirety, a lot of what you're hearing is constantly being introduced throughout Act Two, and that's like a big culmination moment. And then just yeah, to have that prologue uh, music theme at the end is just it's 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 so good, it's so smart. Uh, I don't have a Harry's pick. I didn't have Harry listen to opera. I figured that that would probably not be something he'd be interested in. <laughs> you could have showed him the, the the entire play. I could have. I might, I might still. Um, I'm really interested now. Yeah, if if Lorfeo ever comes to Tulsa, we need to go. Yes. Now we're going. We're going. Uh, you know, may, maybe that's my opera homework is that I uh, listen through the Astonishing again. Try, try to look at it through the opera lenses. There's a lot of albums that have claimed to be rock operas, but Astonishing is the most like a real opera. Other ones just say they're a rock opera because they have a storyline. It's just like, no, it's not a rock opera. That's a concept album. Yeah. It's uh, astonishing. Feels like a true, good to, an honest to god opera. All right. So, well, that's our episode. Um, we kind of made things a little shorter. That's kind of an intentional decision we made to kind of just streamline everything a little more. Our episodes, man, we're getting really exhausting to make when they're getting three hours long. Um, but this was really fun. We hope that you guys enjoyed it as well. Make sure that you guys tune in next week. Make sure you hit the subscribe button. We have new episodes every Monday morning, 9 a.m. Central. Uh, we're going to be doing something new. Ethan and Grant have no idea who the artist or the songs are going to be next week. Zero clue. No nope. idea. This was a preparation episode for that because we knew that we'd have to change the format to listen through the the set in its full length without stopping, but still need to talk about it. So this is a good trial run. Yeah, so you guys are going to get to hear some some real first impressions of of the music from them which i think is going to be really fun but it is going to be another volume two and um actually going to be one that you might not expect but at the same time is going to make sense uh with kind of what's going on in the real world right now so um make sure that you tune in for that i think that is going to be a really fun episode uh, make sure to hit us up on social media and Facebook, uh, Instagram. Let us know 
what artists you would like for us to do episodes on. We're doing one of those every month that is picked by you guys. I've really been enjoying doing that. It's allowed us to kind of talk about some artists maybe that we wouldn't think to or want to. I mean, Springsteen was like the ultimate example of that. Um, So, yeah, let us know who you want us to talk about. And um, there's two links in the description of the episode. One of them will take you to that Spotify playlist. If you didn't listen along with us during the episode, then please make sure you go listen afterward. Even if you're not an opera fan, trust me, Grant just went from a two to a five, which is a very big jump. It's true. Um, You guys might have a change of heart as well. And then also the other link will take you to our Patreon page where we have early and exclusive content. We won't have a bad music podcast episode tonight just because we typically don't do those with our history of music episodes, but we will have one next week. So make sure you check that out. And that is it. I'm Lucas. I'm Grant. I'm Ethan. Keep on listening to good music. Good music.